Section four, part two of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume four, by Rossiter Johnson, Charles F. Horn, and John Rudd. Section 4, Part 2. Huns invade the Eastern Roman Empire. Attila dictates a treaty of peace. A.D. 441. Edward Gibbon. The timid or selfish policy of the Western Romans had abandoned the Eastern Empire to the Huns. The loss of armies and the want of discipline or virtue were not supplied by the personal character of the monarch. Theodosius might still affect the style as well as the title of Invincible Augustus, but he was reduced to solicit the clemency of Attila, who imperiously dictated these harsh and humiliating conditions of peace. Number 1. The Emperor of the East resigned, by an express or tacit convention, an extensive and important territory which stretched along the southern banks of the Danube, from Singidunum, or Belgrade, as far as Nove, in the Diocese of Thrace, the breadth was defined by the vague computation of fifteen days' journey. But from the proposal of Attila to remove the situation of the national market, it soon appeared that he comprehended the ruined city of Nasus within the limits of his dominions. Number 2 the king of the Huns required and obtained that his tribute or subsidy should be augmented by seven hundred pounds of gold to the annual sum of two thousand one hundred, and he stipulated the immediate payment of six thousand pounds of gold to defray the expenses or to expiate the guilt of the war. One might imagine that such a demand, which scarcely equaled the measure of private wealth, would have been readily discharged by the opulent empire of the East, and the public distress affords a remarkable proof of the impoverished, or at least of the disorderly, state of the finances. A large proportion of the taxes extorted from the people was detained and intercepted in their passage through the foulest channels to the treasury of Constantinople. The revenue was dissipated by Theodosius and his favorites in wasteful and profuse luxury, which was disguised by the name of imperial magnificence or Christian charity. The immediate supplies had been exhausted by the unforeseen necessity of military preparations, a personal contribution rigorously but capriciously imposed on the members of the senatorian order was the only expedient that could disarm without loss of time the impatient avarice of attila and the poverty of the nobles compelled them to adopt the scandalous resource of exposing to public auction the jewels of their wives and the hereditary ornaments of their palaces number three the king of the Huns appears to have established as a principle of national jurisprudence that he could never lose the property which he had once acquired in the persons who had yielded either a voluntary or reluctant submission to his authority. 
from this principle he concluded and the conclusions of attila were irrevocable laws that the huns who had been taken prisoners in war should be released without delay and without ransom that every roman captive who had presumed to escape should purchase his right to freedom at the price of twelve pieces of gold and that all the barbarians who had deserted the standard of attila should be restored without any promise or stipulation of pardon in the execution of this cruel and ignominious treaty the imperial officers were forced to massacre several loyal and noble deserters who refused to devote themselves to certain death and the romans forfeited all reasonable claims to the friendship of any scythian people by this public confession that they were destitute either of faith or power to protect the suppliant who had embraced the throne of theodosius it would have been strange indeed if theodosius had purchased by the loss of honour a secure and solid tranquillity or if his tameness had not invited the repetition of injuries the byzantine court was insulted by five or six successive embassies and the ministers of attila were uniformly instructed to press the tardy or imperfect execution of the last treaty to produce the names of fugitives and deserters who were still protected by the empire and to declare with seeming moderation that unless their sovereign obtained complete and immediate satisfaction it would be impossible for him were it even his wish to check the resentment of his warlike tribes besides the motives of pride and interest which might prompt the king of the huns to continue this train of negotiation he was influenced by the less honourable view of enriching his favourites at the expense of his enemies the imperial treasury was exhausted to procure the friendly offices of the ambassadors and their principal attendants whose favourable report might conduce to the maintenance of peace the barbarian monarch was flattered by the liberal reception of his ministers he computed with pleasure the value and splendour of their gifts rigorously exacted the performance of every promise which would contribute to their private emolument and treated as an important business of state the marriage of his secretary constantius that gallic adventurer who was recommended by etius to the king of the huns had engaged his service to the ministers of constantinople for the stipulated reward of a wealthy and noble wife and the daughter of count saturninus was chosen to discharge the obligations of her country the reluctance of the victim some domestic troubles and the unjust confiscation of her fortune cooled the ardour of her interested lover but he still demanded in the name of attila an equivalent alliance and after many ambiguous delays and excuses the byzantine court was compelled to sacrifice to this insolent stranger the widow of armatius whose birth opulence and beauty placed her in the most illustrious rank of the roman matrons for these importunate and oppressive embassies attila claimed a suitable return he weighed with suspicious pride the character and station of the imperial envoys but he condescended to promise 
that he would advance as far as Sardica to receive any ministers who had been invested with the consular dignity. The consul of Theodosius eluded this proposal by representing the desolate and ruined condition of Sardica, and even ventured to insinuate that every officer of the army or household was qualified to treat with the most powerful princes of Scythia. Maximin, a respectable courtier whose abilities had been long exercised in civil and military employments, accepted with reluctance the troublesome and perhaps dangerous commission of reconciling the angry spirit of the king of the Huns. His friend, the historian Priscus, embraced the opportunity of observing the barbarian hero in the peaceful and domestic scenes of life, but the secret of the embassy, a fatal and guilty secret, was entrusted only to the interpreter Vigilius. The two last ambassadors of the Huns, Orestes, a noble subject of the Pannonian province, and Edicon, a valiant chieftain of the tribe of the Scyri, returned at the same time from Constantinople to the royal camp. Their obscure names were afterward illustrated by the extraordinary fortune and the contrast of their sons. The two servants of Attila became the fathers of the last Roman emperor of the West and of the first barbarian king of Italy. The ambassadors, who were followed by a numerous train of men and horses, made their first halt at Sardica, at the distance of three hundred and fifty miles, or thirteen days' journey, from Constantinople. As the remains of Sardica were still included within the limits of the empire, it was incumbent on the Romans to exercise the duties of hospitality. They provided, with the assistance of the provincials, a sufficient number of sheep and oxen, and invited the Huns to a splendid, or at least a plentiful, supper. But the harmony of the entertainment was soon disturbed by mutual prejudice and indiscretion. The greatness of the emperor and the empire was warmly maintained by their ministers. The Huns, with equal ardor, asserted the superiority of their victorious monarch. The dispute was inflamed by the rash and unseasonable flattery of Vigilius, who passionately rejected the comparison of a mere mortal with the divine Theodosius. And it was with extreme difficulty that Maximin and Priscus were able to divert the conversation or to soothe the angry minds of the barbarians. When they rose from the table, the imperial ambassador presented Edicon and Orestes with rich gifts of silk robes and Indian pearls, which they thankfully accepted. Yet Orestes could not forbear insinuating that he had not always been treated with such respect and liberality and the offensive distinction which was implied between his civil office and the hereditary rank of his colleague seems to have made Edicon a doubtful friend and Orestes an irreconcilable enemy. After this entertainment they travelled about one hundred miles from Sardica to Nasus, that flourishing city which had given birth to the great Constantine was levelled with the ground the inhabitants were destroyed or dispersed, 
and the appearance of some sick persons who were still permitted to exist among the ruins of the churches served only to increase the horror of the prospect the surface of the country was covered with the bones of the slain and the ambassadors who directed their course to the northwest were obliged to pass the hills of modern servia before they descended into the flat and marshy grounds which are terminated by the danube the huns were masters of the great river their navigation was performed in large canoes hollowed out of the trunk of a single tree the ministers of theodosius were safely landed on the opposite bank and their barbarian associates immediately hastened to the camp of attila which was equally prepared for the amusements of hunting or of war no sooner had maximin advanced about two miles from the danube than he began to experience the fastidious insolence of the conqueror he was sternly forbidden to pitch his tents in a pleasant valley lest he should infringe the distant awe that was due to the royal mansion the ministers of attila pressed him to communicate the business and the instructions which he reserved for the ear of their sovereign when maximin temperately urged the contrary practice of nations he was still more confounded to find that the resolutions of the sacred consistory those secrets says priscus which should not be revealed to the gods themselves had been treacherously disclosed to the public enemy on his refusal to comply with such ignominious terms the imperial envoy was commanded instantly to depart the order was recalled it was again repeated and the huns renewed their ineffectual attempts to subdue the patient firmness of maximin at length by the intercession of scotta the brother of onegesius whose friendship had been purchased by a liberal gift he was admitted to the royal presence but instead of obtaining a decisive answer he was compelled to undertake a remote journey toward the north that attila might enjoy the proud satisfaction of receiving in the same camp the ambassadors of the eastern and western empires his journey was regulated by the guides who obliged him to halt to hasten his march or to deviate from the common road as it best suited the convenience of the king the romans who traversed the plains of hungary supposed that they passed several navigable rivers either in canoes or portable boats but there is reason to suspect that the winding stream of the tace or tibiscus might present itself in different places under different names from the contiguous villages they received a plentiful and regular supply of provisions mead instead of wine millet in the place of bread and a certain liquor named camus which according to the report of priscus was distilled from barley such fare might appear coarse and indelicate to men who had tasted the luxury of constantinople but in their accidental distress they were relieved by the gentleness and hospitality of the same barbarians so terrible and so merciless in war the ambassadors had encamped on the edge of a large morass a violent tempest of wind and rain of thunder and lightning overturned their tents immersed their baggage and furniture in the water and scattered their retinue who wandered in the darkness of the night 
uncertain of their road, and apprehensive of some unknown danger, till they awakened by their cries the inhabitants of a neighboring village, the property of the widow of Bleda. A bright illumination, and, in a few moments, a comfortable fire of reeds was kindled by their officious benevolence. The wants, and even the desires of the Romans, were liberally satisfied, and they seem to have been embarrassed by the singular politeness of Bleda's widow, who added to her other favors the gift, or at least the loan, of a sufficient number of beautiful and obsequious damsels. The sunshine of the succeeding day was dedicated to repose, to collect and dry the baggage, and to the refreshment of the men and horses. But in the evening, before they pursued their journey, the ambassadors expressed their gratitude to the bounteous lady of the village by a very acceptable present of silver cups, red fleeces, dried fruits, and Indian pepper. Soon after this adventure they rejoined the march of Attila, from whom they had been separated about six days, and slowly proceeded to the capital of an empire which did not contain, in the space of several thousand miles, a single city. As far as we may ascertain the vague and obscure geography of Priscus, this capital appears to have been seated between the Danube, the Teis, and the Carpathian hills in the plains of Upper Hungary, and most probably in the neighborhood of Jezberin, Agria, or Toke. In its origin it could be no more than an accidental camp, which, by the long and frequent residence of Attila, had insensibly swelled into a huge village for the reception of his court, of the troops who followed his person, and of the various multitude of idle or industrious slaves and retainers. The baths, constructed by Onegesius, were the only edifice of stone. The materials had been transported from Pannonia, and since the adjacent country was destitute even of large timber, it may be presumed that the meaner habitations of the royal village consisted of straw or mud or of canvas. The wooden houses of the more illustrious Huns were built and adorned with rude magnificence according to the rank, the fortune, or the taste of the proprietors. They seem to have been distributed with some degree of order and symmetry, and each spot became more honorable as it approached the person of the sovereign. The palace of Attila, which surpassed all other houses in his dominions, was built entirely of wood, and covered an ample space of ground. The outward enclosure was a lofty wall or palisade of smooth square timber, intersected with high towers but intended rather for ornament than defence this wall which seems to have encircled the declivity of the hill comprehended a great variety of wooden edifices adapted to the uses of royalty a separate house was assigned to each of the numerous wives of attila and instead of the rigid and illiberal confinement imposed by asiatic jealousy they politely admitted the roman ambassadors to their presence their table and even to the freedom of an innocent embrace when maximin offered his presence to Circe, the principal queen he admired the singular architecture of her mansion the height of the round columns 
the size and beauty of the wood which was curiously shaped or turned or polished or carved and his attentive eye was able to discover some taste in the ornaments and some regularity in the proportions after passing through the guards who watched before the gate the ambassadors were introduced into the private apartment of sars the wife of attila received their visit sitting or rather lying on a soft couch the floor was covered with a carpet the domestics formed a circle round the queen and her damsels seated on the ground were employed in working the variegated embroidery which adorned the dress of the barbaric warriors the huns were ambitious of displaying those riches which were the fruit and evidence of their victories the trappings of their horses their swords and even their shoes were studded with gold and precious stones and their tables were profusely spread with plates and goblets and vases of gold and silver which had been fashioned by the labor of grecian artists the monarch alone assumed the superior pride of still adhering to the simplicity of his Scythian ancestors. The dress of Attila, his arms, and the furniture of his house were plain, without ornament, and of a single color. The royal table was served in wooden cups and platters. Flesh was his only food, and the conqueror of the north never tasted the luxury of bread." when attila first gave audience to the roman ambassadors on the banks of the danube his tent was encompassed with a formidable guard the monarch himself was seated in a wooden chair his stern countenance angry gestures and impatient tone astonished the firmness of maximin but vigilius had more reason to tremble since he distinctly understood the menace that if Attila did not respect the law of nations, he would nail the deceitful interpreter to the cross and leave his body to the vultures. The barbarian condescended by producing an accurate list to expose the bold falsehood of Vigilius, who had affirmed that no more than seventeen deserters could be found. But he arrogantly declared that he apprehended only the disgrace of contending with his fugitive slaves since he despised their impotent efforts to defend the provinces which theodosius had entrusted to their arms for what fortress added attila what city in the wide extent of the roman empire can hope to exist secure and impregnable if it is our pleasure that it should be erased from the earth he dismissed however the interpreter who returned to constantinople with his peremptory demand of more complete restitution and a more splendid embassy his anger gradually subsided and his domestic satisfaction in a marriage which he celebrated on the road with the daughter of eslam might perhaps contribute to mollify the native fierceness of his temper the entrance of Attila into the royal village was marked by a very singular ceremony. A numerous troop of women came out to meet their hero and their king. They marched before him, distributed into long and regular files. The intervals between the files were filled by white veils of thin linen, which the women on either side bore aloft in their hands and which formed a canopy for a chorus of young virgins who chanted hymns and songs in the scythian language 
the wife of his favorite onegesius with a train of female attendants saluted attila at the door of her own house on his way to the palace and offered according to the custom of the country her respectful homage by entreating him to taste the wine and meat which she had prepared for his reception as soon as the monarch had graciously accepted her hospitable gift his domestics lifted a small silver table to a convenient height as he sat on horseback and attila when he had touched the goblet with his lips again saluted the wife of onegesius and continued his march during his residence at the seat of empire his hours were not wasted in the recluse idleness of a seraglio and the king of the huns could maintain his superior dignity without concealing his person from the public view he frequently assembled his council and gave audience to the ambassadors of the nations and his people might appeal to the supreme tribunal which he held at stated times and according to the eastern custom before the principal gate of his wooden palace the Romans, both of the East and of the West, were twice invited to the banquets, where Attila feasted with the princes and nobles of Scythia. Maximin and his colleagues were stopped on the threshold till they had made a devout libation to the health and prosperity of the king of the Huns, and were conducted, after this ceremony, to their respective seats in a spacious hall. The royal table and couch, covered with carpets and fine linen, was raised by several steps in the midst of the hall, and a son, an uncle, or perhaps a favoured king, were admitted to share the simple and homely repast of Attila. Two lines of small tables, each of which contained three or four guests, were ranged in order on either hand. The right was esteemed the most honorable, but the Romans ingenuously confess that they were placed on the left, and that Beric, an unknown chieftain, most probably of the Gothic race, preceded the representatives of Theodosius and Valentinian. The barbarian monarch received from his cup-bearer a goblet filled with wine, and courteously drank to the health of the most distinguished guest, who rose from his seat and expressed in the same manner his loyal and respectful vows. This ceremony was successively performed for all, or at least for the illustrious persons of the assembly, and a considerable time must have been consumed, since it was thrice repeated as each course or service was placed on the table but the wine still remained after the meat had been removed, and the Huns continued to indulge their intemperance long after the sober and decent ambassadors of the two empires had withdrawn themselves from the nocturnal banquet. Yet, before they retired, they enjoyed a singular opportunity of observing the manners of the nation in their convivial amusements two Scythians stood before the couch of Attila, and recited the verses which they had composed to celebrate his valor and his victories. A profound silence prevailed in the hall, and the attention of the guests was captivated by the vocal harmony which revived and perpetrated the memory of their own exploits. A martial ardor flashed from the eyes of the warriors, who were impatient for battle and the tears of the old men expressed their generous despair that they could no longer partake the danger and glory of the field 
this entertainment which might be considered as a school of military virtue was succeeded by a farce that debased the dignity of human nature a moorish and a scythian buffoon successively excited the mirth of the rude spectators by their deformed figure ridiculous dress antic gestures absurd speeches and the strange unintelligible confusion of the latin the gothic and the hunnic languages and the hall resounded with loud and licentious peals of laughter in the midst of this intemperate riot attila alone without a change of countenance maintained his steadfast and inflexible gravity which was never relaxed except on the entrance of ernak the youngest of his sons he embraced the boy with a smile of paternal tenderness, gently pinched him by the cheek, and betrayed a partial affection, which was justified by the assurance of his prophets that Ernak would be the future support of his family and empire. Two days afterward the ambassadors received a second invitation, and they had reason to praise the politeness as well as the hospitality of Attila the king of the huns held a long and familiar conversation with maximin but his civility was interrupted by rude expressions and haughty reproaches and he was provoked by a motive of interest to support with unbecoming zeal the private claims of his secretary constantius the emperor said attila has long promised him a rich wife constantius must not be disappointed nor should a roman emperor deserve the name of liar on the third day the ambassadors were dismissed the freedom of several captives was granted for a moderate ransom to their pressing entreaties and besides the royal presence they were permitted to accept from each of the scythian nobles the honourable and useful gift of a horse maximin returned by the same road to constantinople and though he was involved in an accidental dispute with beric the new ambassador of attila he flattered himself that he had contributed by the laborious journey to confirm the peace and alliance of the two nations but the roman ambassador was ignorant of the treacherous design which had been concealed under the mask of the public faith the surprise and satisfaction of Edicon, when he contemplated the splendor of Constantinople, had encouraged the interpreter Vigilius to procure for him a secret interview with the eunuch Chrysaphius, who governed the emperor and the empire. After some previous conversation and a mutual oath of secrecy, the eunuch, who had not from his own feelings or experience imbibed any exalted notions of ministerial virtue, ventured to propose the death of Attila as an important service, by which Edicon might deserve a liberal share of the wealth and luxury which he admired. The ambassador of the Huns listened to the tempting offer, and professed, with apparent zeal, his ability, as well as readiness, to execute the bloody deed. The design was communicated to the master of the offices, and the devout Theodosius consented to the assassination of his invincible enemy. But this perfidious conspiracy was defeated by the dissimulation or the repentance of Edicon and though he might exaggerate his inward abhorrence for the treason, which he seemed to approve, 
he dexterously assumed the merit of an early and voluntary confession. If we now review the embassy of Maximin and the behavior of Attila, we must applaud the barbarian, who respected the laws of hospitality, and generously entertained and dismissed the minister of a prince who had conspired against his life. But the rashness of Agilius will appear still more extraordinary, since he returned, conscious of his guilt and danger, to the royal camp, accompanied by his son, and carrying with him a weighty purse of gold, which the favorite eunuch had furnished, to satisfy the demands of Edicon, and to corrupt the fidelity of the guards. The interpreter was instantly seized and dragged before the tribunal of Attila, where he asserted his innocence with specious firmness, till the threat of inflicting instant death on his son extorted from him a sincere discovery of the criminal transaction. Under the name of ransom or confiscation, the rapacious king of the Huns accepted two hundred pounds of gold for the life of a traitor whom he disdained to punish. He pointed his just indignation against a nobler object. His ambassadors, Eslaw and Orestes, were immediately dispatched to Constantinople, with a peremptory instruction which it was much safer for them to execute than to disobey. They boldly entered the imperial presence, with the fatal purse hanging down from the neck of Orestes, who interrogated the eunuch Chrysaphius, as he stood beside the throne, whether he recognized the evidence of his guilt. But the office of reproof was reserved for the superior dignity of his colleague, Eslaw, who gravely addressed the emperor of the East in the following words, Theodosius is the son of an illustrious and respectable parent. Attila, likewise, is descended from a noble race, and he has supported by his actions the dignity which he inherited from his father, Manzuk. But Theodosius has forfeited his paternal honors, and by consenting to pay tribute has degraded himself to the condition of a slave. It is therefore just that he should reverence the man whom fortune and merit have placed above him, instead of attempting, like a wicked slave, clandestinely to conspire against his master. The son of Arcadius, who was accustomed only to the voice of flattery, heard with astonishment the severe language of truth. He blushed and trembled, nor did he presume directly to refuse the head of Chrysaphius, which Eslaw and Orestes were instructed to demand. A solemn embassy, armed with full powers and magnificent gifts, was hastily sent to deprecate the wrath of Attila, and his pride was gratified by the choice of Nomius and Anatolius, two ministers of consular or patrician rank, of whom the one was great treasurer, and the other was master-general of the armies of the East, he condescended to meet these ambassadors on the banks of the river Drenko, and though he at first affected a stern and haughty demeanor, his anger was insensibly mollified by their eloquence and liberality. He condescended to pardon the emperor, the eunuch, and the interpreter, bound himself by an oath to observe the conditions of peace, released a great number of captives, abandoned the fugitives and deserters to their fate, and resigned a large territory to the south of the Danube, which he had already exhausted of its wealth and inhabitants. 
but this treaty was purchased at an expense which might have supported a vigorous and successful war and the subjects of theodosius were compelled to redeem the safety of a worthless favorite by oppressive taxes which they would more cheerfully have paid for his destruction end of section four part two